Well, it's nice to be here at the Catholic Information Center. And it's great to be talking about the subject of marriage. As you know, right now there are discussions all over the world, both in the church and outside the church, about the nature of marriage, uh, what marriage is, what it should be. And so today I want to talk uh, just a little bit about uh, this book that my wife and I wrote about marriage. And the book arose completely accidentally. Uh, my very first job as a philosophy professor, the chair of the department came to me and said, uh, the professor you replaced has been teaching this course for years on um, happiness, love, and marriage, and so would you be able to take it over? And I'm sure you know uh, when you're newly hired and it's your first job and the boss comes to you and say, says, you know, can you do this? Uh, you, you say, you want to say, yes, I'd be happy to. <laughs> so I had never studied the topic at all. I was married, uh, but I really hadn't looked into the topic at all. And so I inherited this course and the, the old professor's lecture notes and, and I taught it. And what I found was really very interesting. Uh, I've taught lots of different courses in philosophy, probably 20 different courses, logic, ancient philosophy, medieval philosophy, philosophy of law, just a bunch of different things. And this course, by far, is the one that the students uh, enjoy the most. Uh, the students are so engaged, asking questions, they do the reading. There's just a, a real energy level here. And I don't really get it. I mean, when I teach logic, I think it's you know completely captivating. But somehow, this, this really uh, makes them uh, much more excited. So anyway, so I've been teaching this course now for about 15 years, and the students liked it so well that I thought it would be great to kind of put together what we've been talking about over the years into a book so that anybody who uh, wants to can, can get a sense of, of what we're talking about. So I think that it is universally true that everybody wants to be happy. And this is true whatever your political views or religious views, whatever your age. And so the course really begins with a, a deep discussion of the nature of happiness. And in looking at this from a philosophical perspective, um, the philosopher Robert Spitzer divides happiness into uh, four different levels. So we all seek happiness. We, we do it every day. But there's four different ways, primarily, that people seek happiness. And so you can really divide all people into kind of four different classes of people. So. Take the first class, we'll call them the hedonist. The hedonist is someone who says, look, I define my happiness, I define satisfaction in bodily pleasure. So if I can just have enough alcohol or drugs or sex, well, this is really going to bring me deep and lasting fulfillment. And because we're human uh, rational animals, as Aristotle says, we all want bodily pleasure. That's just how we're designed. When we're hungry, we want food. Right? That just, we can't get around that. And so some people think, yes, this is going to be the way to lasting happiness. Now, even the ancients discovered, though, very quickly that this is really not a way to lasting and deep satisfaction. So the philosopher uh, Plato in the Gorgias said that those who pursue bodily pleasure uh, are trying to fill up a leaky sieve. Right? So imagine you have a jar here, and happiness would be filling up the jar to the top. And so you have your beers or whatever, and you fill it up to the top. Well, pretty soon you notice that after you do this for a while, you develop a tolerance to alcohol. So to get the same jolt, as it were, the same satisfaction, rather than just having, say, one or two beers, you pretty soon have to have four, five, six to get the very same kind of level of satisfaction. And this is true of all kinds of uh, bodily pleasure. It is also true that even though we as rational animals all want bodily pleasure, it's also true that we all want more 
than just bodily pleasure. No one would be satisfied simply by being a brain in a vat, right, that's being stimulated by scientists to feel uh, intense pleasure and miss out on the rest of life. Right? No real friends, no real accomplishments, no real anything, just kind of feeling this pleasure. So everybody, and I mean everybody in our society, moves out of exclusive devotion to level one happiness, the happiness of the hedonist. Everybody does, except for there's two kinds of human beings that aren't. Uh, first would be babies, right? Little newborn babies are exclusively devoted to level one happiness. That's all they know, that's all they care about, you know, getting wrapped up and swaddled, and that's it, right? And the other group would be hardcore addicts, right? Hardcore alcoholics or something. Really, they would do anything for, say, more alcohol or something. But everybody else graduates from exclusive devotion to level one and moves on to what Spitzer calls level two happiness. Now, level two happiness is the happiness of the egoist. It's the happiness that you get through achievement, and especially through achievement in comparison to others. So I get my level two happiness maybe from uh, having a book published, or from getting an award from the students, or you might get level two happiness from getting a raise at work. It's the, any kind of happiness in which your happiness is resting on kind of a comparison with others and being better than others. And this, too, in our culture, is very attractive, right? Everybody likes praise, and they like to get a raise, and they like to be famous, and they, everyone likes those things. But I think also that there's extremely good evidence that the happiness of the egoist does not lead to lasting satisfaction. And I come from Los Angeles, and so the, the best example I can think of, of this sort of happiness is the kind of happiness that uh, a celebrity would have. Right? Celebrities really have level one and level two in kind of maximum doses. Right? They have all the drugs, alcohol, and sex partners they could want. And they have tons of money, tons of fame, tons of power, etc. And yet, isn't it true that we all know that even the most famous of celebrities, many of them are desperately unhappy. And even though they've accomplished all kinds of things, you know, winning an Oscar, it doesn't last. I read an interview about uh, that Robin Williams gave, and he said that yes, he was happy from winning, you know, os his, his Oscar from In Goodwill Hunting, you know, Best Supporting Actor. Uh, he was happy for a week. And he said it was just completely. After that, it was completely not on his radar anymore. Right, so one week. And some people say with other achievements, it's even less than a week. So no matter how what level of achievement we we get to, it isn't lasting, and there's always something beyond it. So you might be an attorney, and you might say, wow, if I could just be a partner in my firm, wow, that would be really lasting happiness. But I guarantee you, if you may partner, after a while, you know, you get used to it, and that's just the way life is, and you'd think, well, you know, it would really be great to be a judge, right? Then I'd really be on top of things, and it would be... And if you got that, it would be wonderful for a little while, but pretty soon you'd get used to that. So you might say your, high, your sight's really high. If I could be on the Supreme Court, Right, Ginsburg's going to retire pretty soon, right? Move into the Supreme Court, then I'd really be lastingly happy. But even if you got to that level, right? You could always be Chief Justice, right? <laughs> and even Chief Justice Roberts thinks, well, I could always be the best Chief Justice ever. They could look back and say, you know, the famous Roberts Court. He compares himself to other Chief Justices, I'm sure. So no matter how high we get, as it were, on the ladder of success, there's always something higher. There's always something beyond. We're never really lastingly happy with it. 
And even if we get maximum level one and maximum level two, as many Hollywood celebrities get, we're not going to be lastingly happy with it. So what is better? Well, what's better is love, right? What Spitzer calls level three happiness and level four happiness. Level three happiness is about love of neighbor. It's about serving others. It's about appreciating others. It's about being unified with others. And level four happiness is about loving God. And that means appreciating who God is. That's worship. That means being united with God. That means having goodwill for God. And what do you, what do you mean, having goodwill for God? Well, you can't really help God, right? How are you going to help God? God's perfect. He's all-powerful. Well, Christians believe you kind of can't help God, right? Didn't Jesus say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. So we believe, Christians believe at least, that you really can help God in the person of Jesus, in whoever is vulnerable and needing help. So this sort of happiness is more lasting. And this is something that's not just a matter of Christian faith. Secular psychologists in positive psychology have looked extensively at what really does lead to lasting happiness. And what they found is this, that more money doesn't make any difference for happiness after you're out of serious poverty. So yes, if, if you don't eat three meals a day, if you have nowhere to sleep, if you have no shoes on your feet and your feet are getting hurt, yes, more money would make you more happy. But basically, once you're above poverty and you're eating three meals a day and you're sleeping in a bed, more money makes no difference. So whether you make you know, $25,000 a year, $250,000 a year, $2 million a year, completely irrelevant for happiness. No more relevant than having blue eyes, green eyes, or brown eyes. It makes no difference. And this is a secular psychologist. Their research shows. So what did they find makes the biggest difference? Well, the Harvard study on happiness studied undergraduates at Harvard from the age of uh, entering Harvard at 18 over the course of 50 years. And what the study found is the single most important factor for happiness. Please come in. That's okay, no problem. Come on in. The single most important happiness was just one word, love. Those people who had loving marriages, loving families, loving you know friends, etc., those people lived the longest, were actually the most successful materially, if you measured financial well-being, they actually did the best, and had the highest levels of happiness. Now, marriage is related to love. Obviously, in anyone uh, who's married or not can love. Right? This is something we all can do. And what is love? Well, I think the best definition I've ever heard of it is from a philosopher named Alexander Pro. So what he said is this, that love is having goodwill for the other person, appreciating the other person, seeing what's good and noble and true in them, and being united with the other person in various ways. So friends maybe are united through playing tennis together or going to movies together or whatever, having conversations. They're united in some way. And so we all have this uh, desire for happiness, which is only satisfied through love. And how does marriage fit into this? Well, marriage is a way of specifying this, of making it actual. So how many, just raise your hand, how many people here uh, have made January you know, first resolutions, New Year's resolutions? Can you raise your hand? You did? Good, okay, how long did yours last? Did you make it? Not very long? <laughs> well, you're like most people. Right? They've done studies of this. Most people don't carry out their New Year's resolution. And the interesting thing is why. And the reason most people don't carry out their New Year's resolution often has to do with a lack of specificity. So people will make a resolution like, this New Year, I'm going to exercise more. Right? And it's so kind of vague that it never really happens. It's not 
it's not very actionable, as it were. And it's much more likely you carry out your New Year's resolution exercise more if you say, well, every morning at 8 o'clock, I'm going to jog for 20 minutes, or walk for an hour, or ride my bike, or go swimming, or whatever, right? At a particular time, a particular place, a particular way. And marriage is a means, it's a road to happiness in a similar way. So when I think about how to deepen happiness, I don't have to fish around for it. Well, how, who am I going to love? What am I going to do? It's very concrete. It's very specific. It's very actionable. Right? I know, okay, I'm married, love my wife, got kids, great, love my kids. I can start off very easily and effectively. If I ever want uh, suggestions, I can always say, honey, anything you need, any help? And she usually has something for me to do. So it's very actionable in that way. So love is not the only way to happiness. Marriage, rather, is not the only way to happiness, but it's a wonderful way to happiness because it is so concrete and easy to actualize, as it were. So in this book, what I do is talk about um, the nature of uh, various myths about marriage. And I just want to say just a quick word about uh, a number of these, and then I'll open up for questions. So one of the big myths about marriage that I talk about uh, with my wife here in this book is the idea that marriage is a 50-50 contract. A lot of people, this was, I think, more popular in the 70s maybe than now, think of marriage as sort of uh, a contractual agreement where both parties promise to do their fair share, right, 50-50. And that is one way to think about marriage. But I think the deeper and more profound way to think about marriage is not as a 50-50 contract, but rather as a 100%, 100% covenant. Now, what's the difference? Well, a contract establishes a kind of business working relationship with the other person, whereas a covenant is different. A covenant, you're not giving, say, goods and services to the other person. In a covenant, you're giving yourself to the other person and they're giving themselves to you. A contract involves only conditional sort of love. If you have a contract marriage, you say, look, I will love you under certain circumstances. Right? So as long as you do this or that, or so, so long as you don't do this or that. A covenant marriage by contract is much more radical. In a covenant marriage, you're promising to love the person no matter what, to love them unconditionally. And that's for that reason, covenant marriage is indissoluble. What that means is, because there's this bond of unconditional love, one is not free to, say, divorce one's spouse and go marry somebody else. Whereas in a contract marriage, that'd be fine. If the person doesn't meet your specifications, then you can go find somebody else that would meet your specifications. So for my students, what I try to clarify is just these two different understandings of marriage. And look, we live in a free country. No one should ever be forced to get married. And we should have the freedom also to discuss with the person we're thinking of marrying well, what exactly is your view of marriage? Right? Do you have a contract view of marriage, where it's kind of a 50-50 deal? Or do you have this covenant view of marriage, right? where it's about unconditional love? And the meaning of that is specified in the vow, tell death do us part. The relationship in a covenant marriage is a little bit like the relationship of a parent to a child. So I'm a father, and I try to be a good father, and my kids are good kids for the most part. But I'm their father no matter what. If I were a horrible father and went to Las Vegas and spent all the money and just went crazy, I'd still be their father. And if they were horrible kids and went off to, I don't know, do horrible things, and uh, they'd still be my kids. There's no undoing that relationship. Right? I'm their father no matter what. They're my kids no matter what. In a covenant marriage, that's the kind of relationship that the husband and wife have. They are husband and wife no matter what. And hopefully they're good husbands and good wives, but even if they aren't, they're still in that unconditional bond of love.
Another myth that I talk with my students about is uh, in this book, The Fourth Myth, is the myth that cohabitation is just like marriage. And this is a particularly odious myth, I think, because many of my students, or some of my students at least, think that if you are in a relationship with someone, basically right before you get engaged, the kind of next stage of your relationship is cohabitation. Right? And then you live together for a while, and then maybe you get engaged, and then you get married. And many of the, some of them think that there's really no difference between cohabitation and marriage. It's basically, you know, what's the difference? Do you have a piece of paper? Do you have a ring on your finger? There's no real difference. In fact, what I show them through going through lots of uh, research on the topic is that there are radical differences on average between cohabiting couples and married couples. One of those differences is that there's much more domestic violence with cohabiting couples. There's much more infidelity with cohabiting couples. There's much more substance abuse with cohabiting couples. Do those things also happen in marriages sometimes? Yes, yeah, sometimes, but lots, lots more happening with cohabitation. They also think sometimes that living together prior to marriage is a good way to uh, decrease the likelihood of divorce. And it sort of seems commonsensical that if you live together, you get to know each other better, and you'd be able to make a really good decision about whether to marry the person. So your likelihood of divorce would go down, it would seem. In fact, as you probably know, the evidence points exactly the opposite way, that people who live together prior to marriage actually have a much higher rate of divorce. And the longer a couple lives together, the more likely it is they'll get divorced. And again, it's kind of counterintuitive. I, I had a colleague that I worked with, and he had been living with his girlfriend for nine years. And then they got married, and then they were divorced within a year. And I was completely stunned. I, I thought, how could you possibly, you know, you, you've lived with her for so long, you must know her. How could you just turn around and divorce after a year? But apparently it's actually quite common that basically the longer the cohabitation is, the more likely it is that they'll get divorced. And for the female students in particular, I point out that cohabitation works systematically against the advantage of the female in the, in the cohabitation. Why? Well, they've done studies world, uh, worldwide of what it is that most men are looking for in a marriage partner. And what they found, it's probably not a big, big surprise to you, is that men, when they want to get married, value youth and beauty in the person they're marrying. Right? Probably not a big surprise to you. And they found also worldwide, women valued economic productivity, stability, being able to provide. Right? So again, it's not kind of shocking news probably to most people. So what happens if a couple moves in together? Let's say they're both 25, and they live together for, let's say, seven years. Now, four out of five cohabiting couples do not get married. Right? Most don't get married, 80%. So now they're 32, and they're not married. So what's happened over the course of these years? Well, what's happened is that the man has gained more of what most women are looking for in a marriage partner. Not always, but almost always. A man is further along in his career, more mature, more able to provide than he was when he was only 25. And then what about the woman? Well, she has lost more of what most men are looking for in a marriage partner. Right? She's not as young, as beautiful at 32 as she was at 25, presumably. So relative to where they began, basically what's happened is that the man has gained more in the marriage market, as it were, and the woman has lost in the marriage market. And again, sometimes my female students are kind of surprised to, to think about that, but I think the logic really holds true, that cohabitation really works to the systematic disadvantage of the women involved. Let me just talk about one last myth about marriage. And it's a myth that we call here uh, that children are irrelevant to marriage, that children don't really matter. You can think about children as a kind of an extra, 
like you might want to have some children, just like you might want to take a trip to Hawaii. In fact, I think that children are really the greatest gift to marriage. And I think this for a number of reasons. One is that children help a couple to realize the goal of erotic love. The goal of erotic love is, I think, to be as united as possible with the one that you love. I mean, think about if you've ever been in love. Didn't you want to be with that person all the time, hang out, talk with them, do stuff with them? You just love being with them. You wanted to be united with them as much as you could. And that's why, of course, people that are madly in love think about getting married, because they want to be united as much as they can together. But if you think about it, having a child with someone is a way of being as closely united with the person as you can be. I mean, not just in the act that brings about the child, but also you're united in terms of affection. Almost always, both the, the mother and father have affection and love for that child, and they work for that child's uh, well-being. And studies have shown that the likelihood of divorce goes down as a couple has children. So worldwide, they found that the likelihood of divorce was about 37% if there were no children. And if a couple has one child, it drops to 25%. And if the couple has two children, it drops to 18%. And if a couple has four or more children, worldwide they had only a 3% likelihood of divorce. So children are, as Aristotle said, a kind of glue, a kind of bond that enables the couple to be together. And Christians, I think, have an extra reason uh, for seeing children as a great crown of marriage, a great good of marriage. And that is this, that Jesus, as you may recall, in the Gospel of Matthew, talks about the final judgment. Right? And he says, he'll say to those on one side, I was hungry and you fed me. Right? I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Come into my heavenly kingdom. Right? And then he says to those on the other side, right? I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. And they go off to eternal punishment. I remember hearing that passage when I was a kid. And I looked around the church and I thought to myself, this is horrible. Like Everyone here is going to hell, I think. Right? I mean, who does this? Like Mother Teresa and her sisters, okay, they're fine. No one else does this. Right? But when I became a father, I realized, you know what? All good fathers do this, and all good mothers do this. Right? When their child's hungry, they give the child something to eat. When the child's thirsty, they give the child something to drink. They literally clothe the naked child very often after every bath. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me, you bet. Every child comes into a family as a stranger, right? Unless you get an ultrasound, you don't even know if it's a boy or a girl. But even if you know that, you don't know whether this little boy or little girl is going to be athletic or clumsy, right? Valedictorian or learning disabilities, right? Extremely handsome, attractive, beautiful, or very homely. But good parents, what do they do? They welcome that child. Unconditional love. So maybe on that final day, on that final judgment, the good Lord will look out at many of us and he'll say, come into my kingdom. Because we were good mothers, we were good fathers. We did do all those things to the least of these, the child among us. So in the book I talk about that, many other things. But I am much more interested in hearing your questions because uh, you know, whenever I have a chance to speak with people, they, they always come up with wonderful, great questions. So um, let me stop with my summary of the book and start with your own questions and comments. Thank you very much.
I wanted to ask more about uh, some of the findings on cohabitation um, and sort of the reasons you think behind why there's more problems in those marriages. I, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that a man's attractiveness goes up through the years and a woman's might go down or something like that. But are there other reasons? You mentioned alcoholism, domestic abuse, things like that, uh, why that might be related to cohabitation. Yeah, in the, in the book I talk about a number of theories that explain the relationship between divorce and cohabitation. So one theory is this, that um, cohabitation doesn't cause divorce, it's just associated with divorce. So in a similar way, you might say, wearing a leather, leather jacket with hell's angels on the back of it is associated with, say, getting injured in a motorcycle accident, right? It's not as if wearing the jacket makes you get in an accident, it's just that the kind of people who wear a leather jacket with Hell's Angels on the back are also the kind of people who are riding around on motorcycles going too fast, right? It's mere association. A causal link, by contrast, would be like, say, smoking causing cancer, right? It's not that the kind of people who smoke just happen to be the kind of people who get cancer, it's that smoking actually causes the cancer. So basically, in the literature, there's some debate about whether it's mere selection or association on the one hand, or whether it's actual, actually causal. The bottom line is this, that the research seems to point to a little bit of both. So it is partly true that the kind of people who want to cohabit are also the kind of people who are less committed to marriage, right? But it's also true, they think, that there is also actual causation going on, that cohabitation causes divorce. How? Well, there's a number of different theories I explore in the book. One of them, the most plausible, probably is this one. It's the sliding, not deciding sort of explanation. And it goes like this. A guy and a girl move in together. And uh, they don't have a TV. So they have to go buy a TV. Right? And then they think it'd be fun to get a dog. So they get a dog. And the couch, you know, the spring's coming through, so they got to get rid of the couch. They get a new couch. And the longer they live together, the more stuff they accumulate the harder it is, the higher the cost of, of breaking it off, right? Maybe they even have a child together, right? Cost of breaking things up goes even higher. So basically, as they live together, after you know four, five, six, seven years, the cost of breaking off the relationship becomes so high that they both say, well, we might as well just get married. I mean, gosh, we've got the couch, and we've got the cat, we've got the baby, we've got, we might as well just get married. And so they slide into marriage rather than making a deliberate cho choice. Now, if they had not been cohabiting together, they would not have chosen to get married because either the partner is not the right kind of person or the relationship quality is not very high. But because they chose to cohabit, especially for a long time, the cost of breaking off the relationship got higher and higher and higher and higher. And so eventually they just slid into marriage, which ends up not being as, uh, as good as, it, as, you know, they end up getting married to someone that they wouldn't have otherwise get, gotten married to. So that's a sliding uh, not deciding sort of hypothesis. I think that's a fairly plausible explanation of why the divorce rates among those that cohabit are, are higher than those that don't, and why the length of cohabitation matters. So cohabitation is a little bit like abusing drugs. It's never healthy for your body to abuse drugs. But if you abuse drugs for, you know, eight years, okay, that's really bad. That's much worse than abusing drugs for only, you know, three months or something. It's never good to do it, but there's a big difference between doing it for eight years straight versus, you know, one summer you go a little crazy. Um, and that's basically what the research shows on cohabitation, is that the longer you do it, the worse the effects end up being. But there are some other explanations, too, of, or, yeah, of why possibly cohabitation causes the divorce I talked about. Thank you.
I'll ask it anyway. Um, you were mentioning lasting happiness and um, like only satisfied through love. And you gave a, a lot of beautiful examples of how you can do that through um, marriage and, um, and as a father. And I was just wondering if you could shed just a little bit of light on how possibly you could achieve that as a single person uh, before, you know, I mean, you give the example of being in church and you're like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to hell. And then you got married. <laughs> it's like, but now I see, one, but that was after you got married that you were right. able to see that. And maybe there, you could set, shed some light on yeah. um, that. Well, one of the interesting things about love is that love is really universal. What I mean is everybody, regardless of marital status, uh, can love other people. Right? You can be single, you could be divorced, you could be widowed, you could be married, you could be whatever. It, really, it's, it's universal. And it's universal in another way. Um, every person that you encounter is actually an opportunity for love. So there's a contemporary psychologist named Barbara Fredrickson who has this very interesting book called Love 2.0. And she talks about love as a kind of, uh, she calls it positivity resonance. The basic idea is this, that everybody that you come in contact with, and I mean everybody, like the guy that drove the cab that got me here, the bellhop, the, you know, everybody you encounter, not just like your best friend or your girlfriend or boyfriend or your mom, everybody actually provides an opportunity for love. Now, obviously things are different. I mean, there's a different way you love your own mother or your own spouse than you love the guy driving the cab. But everybody has, with everyone, there's an opportunity to love. And so what, what would that mean? Well, depending on who the person is, it would mean a slightly different thing. But love involves, as I say, these three elements. One is goodwill, right? So we love other people, first of all, by not harming them, right? right? Refraining from doing bad to them, but hopefully by helping them at least a little bit, right? A kind word, a smile, open the door, friendly, you know, need help with packages. I mean, sometimes there's small things, but still, there, there are things. And sometimes we can do bigger things. And again, this is whether you're single, divorced, widowed, it doesn't matter, right? Everybody who's in, unless you're in solitary confinement somewhere, <laughs> there's always somebody, you know, in your sphere that you could help at least some in some way. Um, and how you do that would depend on, you know, the situation. So, you know, how you help a really good friend, right, might involve, like, helping them move out of their house or listening to them because they're really upset about something bad happened to them or, or things like that. And with more casual people, usually things are, you're less involved and, you know, that's the way things are. But I think anybody who's, again, not like on a desert island alone has tons of opportunities throughout the day for, for love. And, and that really is, again, the means for everyone to get to happiness. Now, the love that uh, a husband or a wife has is distinct in the sense of their path to happiness is very, very concrete and specific, right? In particular, they should show the most love, the most concern, etc., for their own husband or wife and their own kids. Now, if a person's a priest, their love is also specific. They should show special love for their own parishioners, say, or something, right? If you're a teacher, again, that's concrete and specific. You should have a special concern for your own kids. So love is a little bit like a fire, you might say. And a fire always warms most and brightens most those whoever whoever's closest to that fire. And so that's how we should be. We should all be little fires of love. And whoever's closest to us, whoever that is, we should try to be bright, warm, kind, and kind of share that with them. And again, that has nothing to do with being married and not being married. Uh, you could be married and do, be horrible at that. You're mean to your wife. You're mean to your kids. Uh, 
You could be single and be awesome at that. It, it, it's not, it has nothing to do with marital status. Yes. Um, so I think it's pretty safe to say that within marriage, covenant um, love is is kind of the standard. That's how love should be within people who are married. But um, I've noticed that there's a tension before marriage in relationships, like in serious relationships. Right. Um, you know, there's to some degree you should kind of have, you know, a list or something in mind of, of different ways that you're compatible with this person to see if covenant marriage is, yeah. is a possibility. Um, but what is, what would you say is the, I guess the natural balance or progression between covenant love and contractual love? Um, like how, at what point does it switch into the other or is it kind of, um, both at the same time, if that's even possible, yeah. or, you know, is there a point to where when you realize that this person is someone that you can enter into a covenant with, then it kind of switches and then yeah. that's when you should get married. And I, I just, I've noticed the tension and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the way I think of a marriage vow is I take the vow very seriously. So there are some things you can say that radically alter reality, uh, like a judge right before the judge takes an oath of office or, or someone entering the military, before you take the oath and sign the papers and whatever you do, you're not yet a soldier. You're just not. I mean, to be a soldier or to be a judge, you have to sign the papers, take the oath, etc., etc. And before doing that, you're almost a soldier or you're going to be a judge or, or, or whatever, but you're not yet in that, in that role. And so what is it that makes you a husband or a wife? Uh, well, it seems to be very clear. It's, it's taking the oath of, of marriage, the vow of marriage. I mean, if, if you were about to get married, right, and you're walking down the aisle, and halfway down the aisle you're like, oh my God, I can't do this. I don't really love this person. I'm out of here. And you turned around and walked out, you wouldn't be married yet. You are not married until you take that vow, right? And if you, if you bug out in the morning of the, you know, halfway through the, there's lots of movies about this, right? In the middle of the, saying the vows, the guy looks over and sees whatever the bridesmaid that he really loves and, you know, runs out. And if he does that, he's not married. I mean, I advise you to decide before you get on the altar, right? <laughs> you want to make this decision, yeah, with maybe before the invitations go out. But, but again, until you take the vows, you're not married. It's just like a priest. Until the priest is actually, you know, the bishop lays the hands on, he's not a priest. He's a seminarian. And until you take the vow, you're engaged maybe, you're a fiancé, great. You're not married yet. So I would say that's when the the promise of unconditional love, that it becomes a reality when you promise it publicly in that you know, appropriate forum, etc. And before that, the person's your fiancé or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, and it's heading towards marriage, you hope, maybe, uh, but you're not yet married. So how can you decide? Well, that is a very hard question because it, a lot of it, I think, depends on very concrete circumstances, exactly who is this person, exactly who you are. So I don't think I mean, you can say in general things like, okay, if somebody has like a huge drinking problem, okay, that's not a good idea to marry that person, or they have huge mental issues and they're bipolar and they just go crazy, okay, probably you should really think three times before marrying someone like that. But a lot of it has to do with how you relate to him and he relates to you. And, and it, you, I don't think you can really say, just like look up in a book and say, okay, well, you know, I went through the quiz and everything's fine. Because I think it is a personal thing. So what I would do is I do a few things. First of all, I talk to people who are who love you and who are experienced. 
right? Like your parents, maybe even grandparents. People you trust that have, you know, what do you think of this person? How does this person relate to his or her family? You know, do they hate their sister and brother, never talk to them? Okay, that's, that's a danger, I'd say. Um, I'd pray about it a lot. Ask God for guidance. But whoever you marry, it's going to be someone with whom you have irreconcilable differences. All couples have irreconcilable differences. All. It doesn't mean you're going to be miserable or get divorced. All couples have things on which they just don't agree. And it could be about politics. It could be about religion. It could be about how many kids to have. It could be about how many times to have sex. It could be about whatever. It could be a zillion different things. But you're going to. And some people have this mistaken idea. Well, I'll just divorce, you know, say for me, I'll divorce Jennifer and I'll go marry, you know, Susie, and then it'll be all better. And it might be better in the sense of, I might not have the same irreconcilable differences with, you know, Susie that I had with Jennifer, but there'll be new ones. There's always going to be something. I mean, people are not clones or mirrors of each other that, oh, we're perfectly in sync at all times. That's fantasy. That, that, that just doesn't happen. So all couples have these, and it doesn't mean you're going to be miserable. It doesn't. Now, I think you should, it's very intelligent to try to choose someone with whom you have, you know, only small irreconcilable differences or, you know, not big things. Like, for instance, on religion, I think it's extremely important for Catholics to marry other Catholics. Extremely important. This is the foundation. And down the road, trust me, I, I wish I, it would be great if you had sunny days from here until you die in bed together at 85 and birds chirping all the time, everything great. But probably you're going to live on planet Earth. There's going to be some dark days, rain. It's going to be tough. If you have that shared foundation and faith, that is so, so helpful. Because even though you may disagree about this issue or that issue, the biggest things of all you agree about. And the biggest events of your life, you know, you have a child born. And you can share in the joy of baptizing that child together. Or at the end of the book, I talk about my uh, youngest daughter receiving her first Holy Communion, right? Joy. We did, my wife and I are so happy together, and grandparents, everybody happy. And I think if you don't share faith together, that could be, you know, it's not the same, right? They're just not going to. So, again, I, th- I think there are things to look for, but I don't think there's a, a recipe or a rule book where you say, just check off these, these five things and you're perfectly, you know, everything's going to be roses. I mean, I hope it is. I, you know, and again, you know, we have to be realistic. We're on planet Earth. Things are not always going to be perfect. But I think, you know, happiness is possible. Not perfect happiness, but real happiness, nevertheless. So, I don't know. Did that answer your question? Not really? Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, the covenant love is based on a on a decision and a choice, and the decision is made. Uh, I mean, when you get engaged, then you both decide that you're going to make this decision. Right, but but I'd say when you actually get married is when when you decide. Just like the judge, when the judge takes the oath, that's when the person becomes a judge, or when the soldier takes the oath, that's when he becomes a soldier. And if you decide not to take the oath, okay, you, you never became a soldier, and you never got married. If you if you walk out of the church before the ceremony, you you aren't married. Yeah. Good. Sure. Because you'll be in that comfort zone 
of not having to commit for a long time. So if you're not cohabiting with just dating, yeah, well that can. You know what? I'm not sure. I haven't read any research on that. So you, it could be the case that just dating someone for you know five, six, seven, eight years leads to similar problems. It could be that it doesn't. I just I'm just unaware of any research on the topic. I know that cohabitation. There's lots of research on that. But just dating, I'm just not aware. I'm sorry, I just don't know. Yes, sir, thank you. With um, the statistic that you hear a lot of times is 50% of all marriages end in divorce and that type of thing. Right. Would you just talk a little bit about um, fact or fiction, myth or not, of that statistic, long-term impact for our culture, and then what we as, as a people, as a culture, as a church can do to stem or reverse that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, that's actually, it's a myth that 50% of marriages end in divorce. Um, the actual number is, it depending, there's different ways people measure it, but it's 38% is, is a more realistic figure. Um, and basically, that number is itself sort of um, a little bit misleading in this sense that if you have gone to college at all, not graduated from college, if you've been there at all, that lowers your likelihood of divorce by about 60%. If you uh, are a woman and you go to church each week, that lowers your likelihood of divorce by some 20%. If you're a man and you go to church each week, it lowers your likelihood of divorce by some 30%. It's even more powerful, that effect for men. So the thing is people think, oh, 50%, that's not true to start with. But even if it were 38%, it's not just like flipping a coin or something or rolling a die, and, oh, it's just completely arbitrary. There are many, many things you can do and I talk about them in my book, to significantly lower your likelihood of divorce. Now, does this guarantee you won't get divorced? No, no, but it radically lowers it. And there are many things you can do that significantly increase your likelihood of divorce. So it's a little bit like driving a car, right? If you drive a car, there's some chance, there's some likelihood that you might die in a car accident. But if you're driving at a safe speed and you're sober and you've got your seatbelt on and you've got your car maintenance, the likelihood of you dying in a car accident is extremely low, right? Extremely low. Now, on the other hand, if you're drunk and you're going 95 and you're smoking pot and you're, you know, yeah, you're like getting a fate of car accident goes extremely high. So it's a little misleading to say, well, you know, what's your likelihood of divorce? Well, it depends on all kinds of factors, but many of these factors we have control over, right? We can choose to cohabit or not to cohabit, right? Another thing is, uh, we can choose to only know the person a very short time before getting married. That's another thing highly correlated with divorce. If you move in, I mean, if you get married to someone after knowing them for a month, really, really bad idea in terms of having a stable marriage. Now, there are some examples that make it fine, but very, very unlikely. Um, sometimes people think delaying marriage for a long time is necessary to lower likelihood of divorce. That actually isn't true either. I mean, it is true in the sense that if you get married at 16, 17, 18, 19, yes, those marriages are highly likely to end in divorce. But for men, there's no difference in likelihood of divorce if they get married at 22 versus, say, 28. They're completely irrelevant. And for women, there's a very, very slight difference, but, but also almost irrelevant. So sometimes people have these sort of myths, and they think, well, I don't want to get divorced, and that's a very wise thing. But then they think, well, that means I need to delay marriage until I'm you know, 35 or something. I mean, you can do that if you want. You should delay marriages until you find someone who's going to marry. But there's no need to in terms of likelihood of divorce. For men, as I say, 
a guy getting married at 22 as it seemed likely a divorce as a guy getting married at 28. There's just no difference at all. Um, so, yeah, sometimes in our culture we skew a little to the old, you know, pushing it towards that. But yeah, I, I think it's important to get clear on that because I think a lot of people think, oh, it's 50-50 and there's nothing I can do about it. And that's just flat out wrong. There are many, many things we can do to greatly, greatly reduce likelihood of divorce. And more, to put it more positively, there's many, many things we can do to greatly enhance the quality and the happiness of our marriages. Uh, yes. I think definitely we um, are generally sort of people who would want to really strongly advocate for marriage. And so um, I think sometimes we sort of tend to overlook some of those marriages, like the ones you're talking about, where people sort of tend to slide into marriage and we sort of want to talk about how great marriage is. And um, it's definitely a word that suffers from a lot of equivocation in our culture. You know, we just, it's a kind of catch-all for everything from you know, maybe people who are Catholics and getting married and, you know, really open to having kids, too. I mean, in our culture, it's also, you know, referring to same-sex marriages and all that kind of thing. I mean, in the general culture at large, the word has just become like a catch-all from pretty much everything from legal cohabitation all the way to, you know, beautiful covenant marriages. Um, so... It's not really a, I guess there's a question in there somewhere, like, <laughs> yeah, sort of just talk about, like, how to, I guess, um, sort of address that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's important uh, to get clear about what marriage is, at least for ourselves, in the sense of, I think it would be really a shame for two people to get married, and they just have, like, radically different understandings of what they're doing. So that's why I always encourage my students to, look, just be honest and upfront, and communicate, well, this is my idea of marriage. So I actually have them do an exercise. I have them, after we go over the difference between covenant and contract marriage, I actually have them write a letter to their future spouse, you know, and they don't know who that is going to be probably in most cases. But, but I said, look, just write to your future spouse, dear future husband, dear future wife, I want a covenant marriage because blah, 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 or dear husband, dear wife, I want a uh, contract marriage because, and again, obviously they're not locked into this, but I do really want them to think about it because it seems to me it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, how we think about this and, and to think about the role of children in marriage also. I think you're right that obviously marriage is contentious now in our culture with different, uh, not just same-sex marriage, but also polygamy being proposed by people. Uh, but on the other hand, I think we shouldn't get too uh, sort of wrapped up about that. I mean, if you look at the percentage of marriages that are same-sex marriages or polygamous marriages in our culture, you're talking about less than 1% of all marriages, right? I mean, 99 point whatever percent of marriages are one man and one woman you know, hoping to have children. So even though, yes, there are some people out there doing other things, this is not even close to being uh, the norm or standard uh, in our culture by any, by any stretch. The bigger danger in our culture, I'd say, is cohabitation. Now, that is something that is, uh, unfortunately, uh, fairly common. And that's why I think it's quite important to educate young people about the real dangers uh, of cohabitation, and in particular dangers, uh, I think, for, for women. Uh, a few years back, uh, Crisis Magazine published an article about Catholics who were faithful to the magisterium, who church-going people, um, who um, divorced. 
and the common theme in these divorces were expectations were unrealistic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that they figured that if I wasn't happy in this marriage, then it must not be a real marriage. Right, right. So they felt free to divorce and seek annulments. And the article didn't give going with percentages or anything. I think uh, uh, they cited maybe a, a half dozen examples in the article, but they seemed to imply in the article that it was a rising phenomenon. Is this something that you've seen or heard about? Um, have you had any exposure to this and can you comment on it? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say that it's definitely true and it's very sad that there are some very serious Catholics, uh, you know, who marries another very serious Catholic, and then they end up having a really rocky relationship and end up getting divorced. I think that definitely does happen. I also think, though, that the evidence is quite overwhelming that when people practice a faith together, the likelihood of their divorcing is actually very, very low, right? Especially when they have children together. So it does happen, but it's very low. So it's a little bit like, I'd say, the person who is driving at noon on you know, a, a sunny day and seatbelts on, everything's right, and the car tire bursts and they, their car goes and hits a tree and they die. That does happen. It's, it's incredibly horrible. It's sad. But, but, but that's extremely unusual, right? I mean, just like unbelievably unusual. The vast majority of people who die in an auto automobile accident are speeding and or drunk, right? And or it's bad conditions. I mean, it just is, it does happen, yes, but it's very, very, un, uh, very, very unusual. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good point. So I think you're right that that one way uh, marriages can go wrong is to have uh, unrealistically high expectations. I mean, if you think that your wife is always going to be so wonderful as you know your best dates or something, or your husband's always going to be, everyone who gets married is human. Everyone who gets married is imperfect, flawed has uh, pluses and minuses. Uh, all couples have irreconcilable differences. So I think you can have an unrealistically, uh, unrealistic expectations that this person's gonna make me happy and you know, I just, my whole life is gonna be roses from here on out. And I think it's important to deflate those expectations in the sense of, yes, marriage is a path to happiness, but all paths to happiness, whether you're single, married, widowed, divorced, a priest, a nun, whatever, all paths to happiness have their challenges and difficulties. We're, we're human beings. There's n no one is going to have you know nonstop birds and sunny weather, and that that just that's not human life. That's not life on planet Earth. That's what heaven is about. So if you're th expecting heaven on Earth, then you're bound to be disappointed. But I think that it is realistic to think that you can have happiness in marriage, especially through uh, through marriage with children. I think that that is a deep sense of happiness. But but perfect? No. There's no such thing as perfect happiness here here on Earth. That's, that's what heaven is for. And I think realizing that can actually make you much more happy on Earth, because you realize this person I'm married to is not God. 
They can't perfectly satisfy me in every respect at all all times. Okay, yeah, I'm I'm imperfect too. So it, it might be more healthy to think about married couples as companions. And companions come from the Latin uh, to eat bread together, right? And it's not steak every night. It's not lobster every night. You've got bread. All right, you're healthy. You know, it's moving forward. And again, I think I think that that. And one more little bit about that is I think it's important not to think about happiness in the marriage as static. So one thing I talk about in the book is that they did a study of very, very unhappy couples that were thinking of divorcing. And they followed up with them five years later. And 80% of the couples that were miserable before were reported either being happy or very happy. But it, they actually quoted that study yeah. in the article. Yeah. The University of Wisconsin. Yeah. That's right. With a caveat there, most of the couples but the couples that stayed together for one reason or another, most of them five years later were happy. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a little bit like health. I mean, it's great if you're born and your whole life long you have just wonderful health and you're never sick. But most people, at some point, have a have a serious health problem. It doesn't mean that necessarily that they die, right? Most people, you know, they get cancer and hopefully they fight it off. They have some heart problems, they get a triple bypass. I mean, you know, very often you have health problems, but you can, if you work at it and go to the doctor, you can overcome it. I think the similar thing's true with marriage. That I know in my in our marriage, we had a very difficult time for three or four years and and got past it. So. You know, I, I think this is not unusual. I think it's important to communicate that to people. Say, look, if you if things you go through a kind of dark dark place for a while, stick with it, right? It's not the end of the it's not the end of the line, and that's really part of the Christian story, right? That that Good Friday is not the end of the story. There's something more. There's Easter Sunday, and that is, I think, part of the reason why Christians can have extra resources for dealing with difficulties by tying into that story and saying, well, you know, my life is a recapitulation in some way of the story of Jesus. And yes, this is a Good Friday experience. This is really not my cup of tea right now. I'm really not happy, but I'm going to hang in there and wait for the resurrection. Yeah, Hi. Hi. Sorry, I missed your talk. And if you treated this before, we can talk one-on-one about it. But building on what you just said um, about the distinct resources that we have as Catholic Christians, as Christians more broadly, you know, the grace of Jesus Christ, um, and that marriage is a sacrament. Where am I going with this? Oh, did you address the, the question or the, what seems to me to be a systemic generational factor in the cohabitation? I've heard, um, Brad Wilcox talk about cohabitation and how it's really the, the kind of scourge right now. Is it that this generation is a generation that's the children of the divorced? Yeah. And if you treated this already, please, you know, say forget it. But do we, as a generation, we and younger, most people in this room are younger than I, do, do most of us basically in our heart of hearts have a hard time believing that marriage is really possible? And so we don't even try. Or, or we hope for it and we hold out for the perfection and we think we, when we get, we get married, we think we've n- nailed it. And then when the perfection isn't there, we let go because 
there isn't this humility and, and courage, coraggio, the taking heart that like, oh, I've seen my parents work it through, therefore I can do it too. If, but if the parents have and the aunts and uncles haven't done it or the friends and colleagues haven't done it, well then how am I supposed to yeah. pull through? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think you're right. I think that does affect things. One of the things that they found that is um, a factor, risk, risk factor for a divorce is if your own parents are divorced. So if you come, your, your own parents were divorced, you're more likely to divorce than if your own parents aren't. And I know in my marriage, this was really kind of an operative factor for a number of years. So I've been married now for 22 years, but for the first probably 10 years of my marriage, so my, my, mom, or my wife's uh, mother's been divorced twice. So for about the first 10 years of our marriage, whenever Jennifer and I got in a big fight, she'd be like, that's it, we're getting divorced, it's over. And my parents, happily, are still married after 53 years. And so my attitude was always like, no, oh, this is just a fight. You know, yeah, it wasn't pleasant for me either, but, you know, we'll be fine. And, um, and it, but I think if you see that growing up, it, it sort of, it's natural. You think, this is, this is how things go. You get in a big fight, and that's the end of it. And uh, Whereas, say, for me, you know, yeah, my parents had trouble sometimes, but that didn't mean they were getting divorced. And so I think those factors really do, um, uh, you know, factor into how people behave. Now, I don't want people to feel they're doomed, though. In other words, just because your parents were divorced does not mean you're guaranteed to get divorced. That's not true. Just like if your parents were married doesn't mean you're guaranteed to stay married. So, but I do think if your parents are divorced that you should take some special care to really make special efforts to, you know, do the best you can in terms of, uh, you know, doing things you can do to lower the likelihood of divorce. And the most important thing, really, is to swing back to what I was talking about at the very beginning of the talk is to try to be a person who is at level three and level four. I mean, the more virtuous, loving, caring you person you can become, the better your marriage will be if you are married, or the better the prospects for your marriage if you're, if you're seeking marriage. Um, and that's something we do have control over, right? We can't control who our parents were. We can't control all kinds of things. But we can, with God's help, hopefully advance in the ways of love and, and help and uh, growth in terms of virtue. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, literature, just you used that word earlier. She just mentioned Brad Wilcox. You mentioned sliding versus deciding, which is, uh, I don't know if you know, you mean a blog by, um, okay, you do. Um, the I, I wanted to know where do you get your literature? How do you go about reading things who who might be some of your peers or or you know like brad wilcox who are some people that that might put out blogs periodicals i know you're at the james p madison um program or institute next to witherspoon so yeah um well the research i did, I did for this book was really over the course of about 15 years so there wasn't a single source i sort of Whenever I ran across something that I thought would be useful, I kind of put it in a file, and sometimes I taught it to the students, and sometimes I didn't, but there wasn't really a single source. But yeah, some of the things you've mentioned, I think, are good places to look. There's a group called the um, National Marriage Project, and uh, Brad Wilcox and others are kind of uh, heading that up. So that's that's like a, a great resource. But, but really, I mean, there's if you look in the footnotes, you'll see lots and lots of different places that I've drawn from, uh, and there really is, this is really a blessing, there's lots of good sociological data, um, and, and this, this data really points towards the wisdom of, of Catholic practice in terms of, in terms of marriage. So, so there's, this is one of those many places where you see 
a, uh, a kind of synchrony between faith and reason, what they, you know, is a traditional matter of faith with what we find in terms of science, kind of overlapping. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I could say, I can't really answer a question because there isn't a single, it's, it's kind of all kinds of different places. Yes, sir. Researchers studies um, looking at n not only the number of kids as it relates to the uh, happiness and like lasting yeah. of marriages, but also the way those kids are, are had. And the, the question comes to, uh, b because more and more I see myself talking to colleagues and friends about you know being open to life first. Yeah. You know, it's harder and harder nowadays to get married and, and be able to support a family. Yeah. But being open to life is definitely, I think, a challenge. Yeah. And then if you decide to be open to life, whether you want to do it kind of in a planned way. Right. Right. I'm going to plan my kids and space them and, you know, determine when it's mm -hmm. the right time to add that kid versus not and really abandoning yourself right. to the will of, of God. And, and I just find it a really interesting kind of dynamic and I was wondering if there's any data or research that, that points towards one or, or the other or not. Yeah, um, as far as I know, I haven't read anything that addresses your your specific question. There just is nothing that, that, that I've read. Uh, the one thing I've read that seems relevant is that there seems to be some evidence that people who don't use contraception, you know, the kind of choice, I do have a lower likelihood of divorcing. I've read somewhere that people who use natural family planning have like about a 3% likelihood of divorcing, which is quite low. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure, I've never read anything comparing, say, people that use NFP with people who just say, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. I, I haven't read anything about about that. Um, so yeah, I'm, maybe there's some study out there, but I'm not aware of it, at least. I do think that, that sometimes people underestimate the the powerful good of children in a marriage. And I really do think this is kind of a glue. I mean, Aristotle talked about friendship as involving uh, a number of elements. And one of them was uh, goodwill, and another one was kind of a shared emotional life. And I think when you have children, it really powerfully reinforces both those things. So when a couple has a child together, uh, you know, the husband has an extra reason to love his wife, right? He's, he's, she's not just his wife, she's also the mother of his daughter, say. And the same thing goes for her. And in addition to that, there's also an extra motivation for trying to be um, keep the marriage going. Because both husband and wife know if this marriage falls apart, it's not just us who are, are going to be hurt. It's also the children. So you have an extra reason to really work at the marriage and try to be a good husband, good wife, etc. The other thing, though, I think having kids do is it really helps you have a kind of shared emotional life. So when Aristotle said real friends kind of share in the emotional life with each other. When you have a kid, I think this comes about very naturally. So when things go really well for your child, right, like our son was a, a high school football player, and he wasn't the star of the team, but he was pretty good. So when he would make an interception or whatever, like my wife and I were like completely delighted together, right? And then on the other hand, I won't say, uh, well, I was going to say something that embarrass my son, but this is being taped, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but let's say, um, oh, so we have a daughter who has some learning disabilities. And so, you know, we study with her, you know, really hard, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, takes the test Friday, fails it. You know, we're sad together. We're upset about this together. So, but I think that togetherness is really enhanced through having kids that, you know, the kids are doing well, you have that joy. The kids are not doing well, you're together in your concern and, and sorrow, but you're together. And that, I think, really reinforces friendship, which is, a powerful element, I think, in a, in a happy and healthy marriage. Yes. 
Are you familiar with the work of Douglas Farrow at McGill University? He wrote an article so. called Why Fight Same-Sex Marriage okay. that was in Touchstone. And, and Anthony Esselin's been writing a lot about this as well. Right. And as an educator, um, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are because I think that's a very serious threat to marriage. Yeah. The way that it's understood, especially for children, because children are now, before they understand human sexuality, they're, they're trying to process homosexual behavior. Right. And they're sort of being forced to approve of it. And um, I'd just be curious to know what you have to say about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, I would say that the bigger danger, I think, in, in terms of marriage is uh, cohabitation. And the reason I think that is that, according to the, um, uh, I think it's a Center for Disease Control, maybe it's not Center for Disease Control, but there's a statistic that about 1.6% of Americans identify as uh, gay or lesbian. So in other words, you're talking about a very, very, very small percentage of the overall population, right? 98% of people don't do that. So in terms of, say, the 98%, what are most people doing? Well, they're not doing that. They're cohabiting. Not most people, but many people. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people more. And that, I think, is the acceptance of cohabitation, in my view at least, is, is a much more serious uh, challenge. I think that the difficulty with same-sex marriage in part is if it leads to the idea of um, a marriage being just about the two people and what really is the a paramount concern is sort of the romantic quality or something. So it's based really on kind of uh, shared feelings or sentiment or something. Now this is also possible, I should point out, with opposite sex couples. I mean, they too can have this sort of misconception of marriage. Um, so, but that I think is actually quite dangerous. But I do address at greater length uh, not just same-sex marriage, but also polygamy in, um, in the book. And uh, I think for different reasons, I always say a word about polygamy, Polygamy, uh, you may be surprised to know, was actually the most common form of marriage uh, in world history. About 85% of societies, if you look at the whole course of history, were polygamous. So what we have now uh, in terms of monogamy is actually kind of uh, more exceptional than, than the norm. But polygamy is incredibly, incredibly damaging in a whole variety of ways uh, to men uh, because most men, or many men, are excluded from marriage altogether. So in polygamy, you have certain real high-status rich men that take, you know, whatever, whole big harem of wives. And then that means some men don't have anyone. Uh, it's also very damaging for women because the age of marriage is pushed down really low. So in polygamous societies, see women get married at 14, 13, uh, and then they're having kids at 13, 14. They're not, you know, as mature as a mother would be if she were, you know, 25 or something. So it's really damaging in, in a variety of ways. But but those are complex issues, too. But anyway, I do explore those at greater length um, elsewhere. Good. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. But you've, you've mentioned a lot that cohabiting is a, a big issue and everything. And I have many friends that live uh, together that are cohabiting. And they, uh, I haven't seen any sign of alcohol abuse yeah. or... Uh, domestic violence, but they look happy. But th sometimes the reasons are, oh, I'm studying, or uh, we're not ready, or I don't know, we're gonna first buy an apartment, we don't have money to get married, or things like that. Yeah. So how would you explain, or what would you say uh, that that could be a problem for their future or anything? And then also, 
it called my attention when you say said that for the women could be a disadvantage because when the man already achieved their or they're successful, mm -hmm. the woman already lost their beauty, which is what the men. So then, what happens? Is it is it uh, because in marriage you already have the, the bow and when you're cohabiting and you probably still see like a free exit or, or what is it exactly? What why is the um, the risk or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The the point I was I was trying to make with the cohabitation was just that when a man and woman move in together and then live together for you know five six years or whatever and then they break up, which most do, eighty percent of cohabiting couples don't get married; they break up. Um, relative to where they began, um, in terms of marriage marriageability, um, the man has typically gained more of what most women are looking for. And then the woman has typically lost more of what most men are looking for in a marriage partner. So just the point was just sort of relative to where they began. It seems that woman is worse off and the man is better off. But that's a distinct point from the the other point about on average when you look at you know 10,000 cohabiting couples and 10,000 married couples, on average you find really pretty dramatic differences. So on average you find, for instance, more domestic violence, more alcohol abuse, more drug abuse, more infidelity among cohabiting couples when you compare them to married couples. Now that's compatible with, you know, these particular cohabiting couples I know, they're not doing domestic violence, not abusing drugs, etc. And then these married couples I know, they are doing domestic violence, they're, you know, getting drunk too much or whatever. But we're talking on average. So if you look at 10,000 cohabiting couples, you'll find this, or 10,000 on average. So a little bit like with smoking. If you look at 10,000 smokers, you'll find on average higher rates of lung disease, emphysema, etc., than you will among 10,000 people who had never smoked a cigarette. But that's compatible with saying, oh my gosh, my friend got lung cancer and died, he never smoked. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's terrible, that does happen, but <laughs> it's much more likely to happen if you smoke, right? So the same thing would be true about, say, cohabitation and marriage. You can find horrible things with married couples true, murder, right? O.J. Simpson murdered his ex-wife, so you can clearly find horrible things, but on average, that those horrible things are much more likely to take place in cohabitation than they are in marriage. That's a good question. Uh, and I'm not, yeah. Uh, well, I know in terms of, I, I'm not, this isn't exactly answer your question, but it's related. Um, if you look at rates of marriage, it's much more likely if you're much more likely to get married if you're um, middle, upper middle class and above. And it's really unfortunate because basically it means that uh, lower middle class people and poor people are not getting married. And the trouble in part is that marriage itself is an institution that helps generate wealth and helps transfer wealth to the children. So if uh, a child's married, uh, if a child is raised by a married couple, that child's more likely to graduate from high school and college, more likely to have support, more likely to have all those helps that help a person get ahead in life. And then if the a child's not raised by married parents, right, they're less likely to get all those good things. So basically what can happen is the lack of marriage can actually exacerbate through the generations the problems of lower middle class uh, people. And then uh, getting married actually kind of helps the upper middle class and, and upper class people. So. So that's that's definitely uh, a fairly a fairly common trend. Good last question. Yes. Yes. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I've been following the Synod of Bishops a little bit, and it's hard to know how reliable things are. I mean, you get these accounts, so-and-so says this, and you know, I'm not there, and then there's always a question of translation. You know, you give a talk in Italian, and someone translates it into English. Well, how accurate is this really? So I don't know really how seriously to take these accounts. Um, I would say that part of what, if I understand what they're doing correctly, part is something that could be very helpful to people to kind of streamline the process of annulment to make it easier, uh, more understandable, more helpful to people. That, that seems like a reasonable thing to, to do. On the other hand, at least some of these reports make it sound like the, some people are proposing changes that would more, uh, be more radical. So uh, I definitely don't think it would be a good idea to lie to people about cohabitation and pretend as if cohabitation is just perfectly fine and there's no problems with it at all. I mean, that their empirical evidence on that point is very strong. It's, it's detrimental. Now, that doesn't mean you have to give sermons on it every Sunday and kind of beat people over the head with it. But on the other hand, it seems to me you know, it's a service to people who don't know to say, look, you know, smoking cigarettes is really not healthy for you. Somebody really doesn't know that. It's a service to let them know. And I think cohabitation, again, is shown to be detrimental in serious ways. And so it seems to me in an appropriate context, it's perfectly fitting and appropriate to let people, let people know about that. So, so who knows exactly what they'll do. I'll trust, uh, maybe we can all pray that, that they are able to articulate things very well and, and uh, be very helpful to people. Uh, it's, it's, I think obviously quite important to emphasize mercy because everybody who's Catholic and everyone who's not Catholic to a greater or lesser degree falls short of what God expects and it could be about some sexual thing it could be about stealing money it could be about whatever so we're all in the same boat now your things in your basket might be a little different than things in my basket and so on but nobody is uh, you know the Virgin Mary and so I think that's appropriate as Pope Francis has been doing to emphasize uh, God's mercy. I mean, God came not to wag his finger at people, but to to show them the way to mercy and forgiveness and love. And I think that that's a very a very healthy thing. But I think that also has to go hand in hand with not um, seemingly giving up on or compromising or watering down uh, important truths like truths about marriage uh, that the church has been proposing to us. Chris, thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much for this time here with us. It's great for me to hear because I'm celebrating my fourth anniversary to my wife tomorrow. All right. So this is great. Great stuff. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you.